Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Emlyn Reseteritz. She's an aquatic disease ecologist specializing in snails and their parasites, and she's currently doing a postdoc at the University of Georgia. So today we talk all about her research studying aquatic snails and their parasites, including her research with the California horn snail in California marshes, and with marsh periwinkles in the salt marshes of the southeastern U.S. So I ask her all about snails and parasites, and one wild thing I learned is that parasites castrate snails. So that was horrifying and wildly unexpected. So if you want to learn about snails and parasites, Emlyn is the expert, and it was fun to learn so much from her. She's also one half of the brilliant hosts of the STEM Fatale podcast, which tells the story of a different historic woman in STEM in each episode. And I find their podcast to be a lot of fun and super informative, so I definitely recommend y'all check them out. Enjoy this episode with Emlyn. My name is Emlyn Osteritz. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for the Ecology of Infectious Disease at the Odom School of Ecology at the University of Georgia. It's like a very unnecessarily long title, uh, but that's that's where I'm at. And I study, right now, mostly I'm interested in understanding how parasites, um, what role parasites have in ecosystems uh, and with kind of a climate change bent, understanding how climate change might change their role in the future. And then I've also done a bunch of stuff with um, parasites that have a cast division of labor, which we can talk about. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. How do you like Athens is my first question, not science related at all. (laughs) I, so I, I went, I got my PhD in Austin, Texas. And so Athens has a similar, it's like a mini Austin kind of, uh, so it's got a lot of good bands, got a lot of good food. I went to one concert before the pandemic. <laughs> so I'll, like, because Athens is pretty small, my partner and I were like, well, let's not explore too much too fast so that we have things to explore throughout your postdoc. And then, so we didn't really explore that much before because I was only here for like six months. So I like it. It's very livable in a pandemic, but uh, I don't know as much as I would like. Yeah, it's kind of a weird time, right? Um, yeah, I know there's a lot uh, of good yeah. music, which is kind of why I asked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, it's it's it seems great. It's very funky, mm-hmm. which I'm yeah. which I like. That's cool. Okay, so parasites roles in ecosystems. Like, what kind of parasites would that be? Uh, I'm mostly interested in parasites that have complex life cycles. So these are things like trematodes and nematodes. Uh, Specifically, I work on trematode parasites, so those are flatworms, and they're interesting and have larger roles in ecosystems than maybe other diseases or parasites might, because like, there's lots of different life cycles, but in general, you might imagine that birds or mammals are the final host where there's sexual reproduction of the parasite. Then usually the bird or the mammal poops out the eggs, And then those eggs then find a snail host or other gastropod where they form these colonies in the snail's gonads. They like castrate the snail, form colonies in the snail's gonads and live there and keep the snail alive for, you know, years and years sometimes. And then 
this parasite colony in the snail then has a free swimming stage which it releases that then will insist on another host like uh, a fish or something a fish or a mollusk or something like that and then generally the final host the bird or the mammal uh, gets infected by eating the secondary host so there's a lot of ecological food web interactions that are happening where the parasite plays this key role. And so because of that, uh, you'd imagine that these parasites might have large roles in the ecosystem because they have to be a part of this food web to complete their life cycle. Is that what makes their life cycle complex, I mean? Yeah, but they have multiple. So they, they don't transmit directly between, like there's no direct transmission between two snails. It has to go through this complex multi-host life cycle in order to uh, sexually reproduce. Okay, yeah, that makes sense because that is really complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to imagine how it evolved. Um, yeah. It's very complex. Also, and did you throw in there, castrate the snail? Let's just like yes. on the sly because <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure I knew that was a thing that could even happen. Mm-hmm. I've been to airports. I, w- I was going to a conference in Canada and they asked me why I was in Canada. And I was like, oh, I'm going to a, a wetland ecology conference. And they asked me what I studied. And I said, parasites that castrate. And <laughs> the person who I talked to got so freaked out and asked me, like, can I catch this? Like, am I safe? And I was like, no, no, no. Unless you're a snail, you're fine. It will not castrate you. But the, the terror uh that this person had was I felt very bad (laughs) yeah you traumatized that poor airport person I did I did okay so can you tell me more about trematodes because I know almost nothing and my only real experience with snails is apple snails that we have here in Louisiana that are invasive and also Mm -hmm. periwinkles yeah so I would say that trematodes are really much more common than you might expect. They're in like many mollusks and gastropods are infected with trematode parasites. And what's fun is that most trematodes have a snail as their like first intermediate host. That's like a relatively constant um, and common thing. So a lot of aquatic snails, like if you... I, I spent a lot of time cracking snails open. So if you cracked an aquatic snail open, um, you would not unlikely see that their whole gonads. So like generally the spiral, the more inward part is their gonads. And that whole area will be chocked full of little parasites. It's disturbing the first time you see it. But I like studying trematode parasites because of their complex life cycle. There's a lot of fun uh, behavioral manipulations that these parasites do. So if you, there's a book called Parasite Rex and it talk, has like multiple chapters about how these parasites can manipulate their hosts um, in various ways. So one of the parasites that I study, uh, so I, I worked for my PhD in the California horn snail. So it's all along the California coast in estuaries, um, in salt marshes. And it, one of the parasites that infects that snail and castrates it is called Euhoplorchus. And this parasite then insists 
in the brains of killifish. So like the secondary intermediate ho- intermediate host, uh, if it gets infected, its brain will just be covered in these cysts uh, from the parasite. And this causes the fish to kind of flop around and show its belly and, and change its behavior so it does much more conspicuous behaviors. And that increases the likelihood that it's going to get eaten, thus helping the parasite complete its life cycle. And so there's all of these different ways that the trematode manipulates its host so that it's more likely to complete its life cycle that I just am really, really into. It makes the fish get all floppy and then get eaten. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. it's like enabling its own survival, which is so wild. Yep. Yeah, there's another one that uses tadpoles as a secondary host and it will insist on the like the i don't know what they're called the buds where the legs will come out and cause deformities in the frogs so the frogs have like multiple legs or not enough legs or they're all weird so they can't move around very well so they get eaten much quicker and much more easily so there's a lot of like interesting morphological and behavioral manipulations by these parasites that are just wild yeah, they're like little puppeteers. It's weird. They are. They are very much so. That's very weird. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said the California horn snail. How yes. big is that snail? Uh, it's like okay, medium-ish. I guess. Yeah, they can get to forty millimeters. Generally, we don't like. We're not interested in ones below like fifteen millimeters. If that gives you like a size range. Yeah, they can live like ten years. Wow. So what's also interesting is that the parasite, when it it castrates the snail, and then it can live in that snail for its entire life cycle, it doesn't necessarily shorten its life. Uh, So they can like inhabit this snail body for about 10 years. Just and, and the snail essentially is like you know, evolutionarily dead in the sense that it cannot reproduce. Uh-huh. So it's just this kind of shell that the parasite's keeping alive so that the parasite can continue to reproduce. And so they're called like body snatching trematodes sometimes. I could see why. It also mm-hmm. sounds like the world's worst roommate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also, uh, hor- it's horrifying. It's the stuff of horror movies where yeah. you're, you know infected and just kept alive for the parasite yeah i'm picturing some of that like really weird 1950s sci-fi like this is straight out of that yep exactly yeah yeah that's about the snail size because like i said my only experience is like apple snails which get pretty big and then like periwinkles which are you know pretty small mm-hmm. and so um i was just curious really yeah they're about the size of a periwinkle but they're like longer they're horn shape but maybe a little bit bigger. Yeah, I've cr- I've cracked apple snails trying to look for parasites and the ha- the size of the hammer. I had to get a mallet. They are yeah, so yeah. hardy. And yeah. it's yeah, the 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 ma- it looks like a massacre. I I much prefer smaller snails to have to crack cuz those guys are so big. Yeah, that's fair. That apple snails are kind of I don't know, running rampant here in Louisiana. <laughs> um and, you know, they're invasive, so I try to just smash all the ones I see, but I so rarely see live ones. I usually just see the shells. Mm. 
Um, and I don't know enough about snails to know if that's because something has eaten it or if it has died and the shell's just floating. Like, I have no idea. I don't know what. Well, if you, snails. if you smash them and you see parasites, let me know. Cause I haven't <laughs> found any parasites in them. I've only seen one alive one and I did not make out away from me. It was too fast. <laughs> it was too fast. It was on um, four by four in the water column. So it was like mm. right under the water and I tried to get it and it got away from me. Gotcha. It probably only went like six inches, but you couldn't see it. So, mm -hmm. Or I'm exceptionally slow. Maybe is the real answer there. Yeah. Well, snails generally don't pose too much of an issue. Like they're, they're very nice to collect because they really don't move that fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It may have also just like fallen off the four by four yeah. and floated away. Into the water. Much harder. Um, yeah, we end up with periwinkles quite a lot in the salt marshes here as well. Um, mm -hmm. Are there parasites that inhabit periwinkles? I assume periwinkles are in a lot of like southeast salt marshes, but yeah. So there are some trematode parasites that will infect like the marsh periwinkle is what we have here, and they're the same. You know, like they they castrate the snail. They because the periwinkle essentially how they get infected is when they're submerged in water right because that's when the eggs or the free there's a either they'll eat the eggs that the birds drop or the birds will change into this like free swimming form and then lo like locate the snail but if the snail's out of water which they can do by climbing up the spartina then they're less likely to get infected uh but so infection's a lot lower than in other systems where the snails don't climb any vegetation but they can still get infected and they found that it, their behavior changes and they spend more time um on the mud flat eating like detritus on the mud flat versus on the spartina when they get infected which changes like what they're eating and and their likelihood of getting predated upon and so the parasite has all of these like cascading effects on the role that the the pair the snails play in the ecosystem so it's so fascinating to me that the parasites basically just like telling everybody what to do <laughs> yes oh absolutely the parasites are the puppet masters and we are all along for the ride ah oh, it's fascinating and horrifying all at the same time yeah, it is it is so how would these things I don't know, is it impact or be impacted by climate change? I think you said that's something you're working on now. I'm trying to think of like ways that this would happen, but this is not my area of expertise. So I'm coming <laughs> up with nothing. Yeah. So what I've been focusing on mostly right now is just growing these snails at different temperatures. And the idea is that when so I've been measuring infected snails and uninfected snails in terms of like how much they're eating. And so I work on ram's horn snails. So they're freshwater snails that are in a lot of wetlands. And when they're infected with parasites, they eat significantly more food than when they're uninfected. And that increases with temperature. And so if you, you know, maybe if nutrients are a limiting factor, when you have increased temperatures, there's going to be higher competition for food. And if you add the fact that the uh, snails are infected, then they require even more food. So that there's going to be even higher competition. They also seem to die more 
at higher temperatures more so when they're infected than when they're not. So they don't seem to um, deal with certain stressors as well. So there's just things like that that are likely to change like population dynamics and the role that these snails play in the various like aquatic ecosystems that they live in. Yeah, if they're like less resilient and dying easier, Mm -hmm. that's gonna have implications for them and their parasites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, exactly. Interesting. And also if they're eating more, that will have implications. It's It's a very complex cycle of things. Yes. Yeah. So I'm trying to do determine right now I'm at the kind of early stages where I'm comparing infected and uninfected snails in the lab across different temperatures and just trying to see what variables are different and how that scales with temperature. Um, So we're kind of at early stages of that. The most difficult part is a lot of these parasites you can't experimentally infect because we're not quite sure what the final host is or we can't manipulate the final host. And so a lot of my work is growing snails, putting them out in these wetlands, and then hoping that they get infected so that I can do experiments back in the lab. So I, I put like 400 snails out and got like 33 infected <laughs> ones. Wow. So it's not always a good ratio of uh, yeah. infected. Yeah. yeah, critters don't always do what you want them to do, right? No, Although, they like, don't. They don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, if we were like doing it you know, and you could control every variable, you would have like X number and it'd be a same across the treatments. And Mm -hmm. sadly, you cannot do that. Nope. Nope. Yeah. So mostly I've I've got a lot of, I've tried to do multiple experiments using the same snails that are infected, but one of the experiments I did, uh, all of the snail, all the infected snails died, which gave me good information of, I guess, infected snails have a lot higher mortality in this system and especially when I put them in higher temperatures but then I had no snails to do anything else with (laughs) so I was like okay well back to the drawing board for a while but yeah oh that's yeah the perils of doing stuff like that is sometimes your Mm -hmm. species die but that's good data yeah yeah exactly especially when they die differentially and in different treatments yeah but yeah and then I guess like the other thing that I think I really is really cool about trematodes in general is that they in like 2010 so trematodes they castrate the snail they form these colonies in the snail's gonads they found that there were two different like sizes of individual of parasite individuals in the snail host and for a while they were like oh well one's juvenile and then becomes larger and then becomes the reproductive that produces the next like free swimming stage. But they discovered that uh, the smaller ones don't seem to turn into the larger ones. So there seem to be these two distinct size classes of parasite in these go like in these colonies. And they believe that the smaller ones are used as like soldiers to defend the colony against invading parasites that might want to utilize that snail host. And so we've got this like cast division of labor where we have reproductive parasites and then non-reproductive soldier parasites that defend the the snail colony, Uh, which, which is part of stuff that I did for my dissertation. But um, the more that people are looking into this, they thought it was like, maybe this is a rare occurrence in a couple species. And it seems like the more we look for it, the more we realize that this might be 
the norm rather than the exception in certain of these trematode species where they, a lot of them have this cast division of labor, it seems. So that's just like budding information. Uh, it could be as diverse, like there's, I think, I'm not gonna say a number, there's thousands and thousands of trematode species. And there might also be thousands and thousands of them that have this cast division of labor. So like potentially equal to, you know, ants in the diversity of these different strategies, so. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> It's just, you know, so much going on in one snail's gonad. You never right. thought. It's such a small <laughs> space to have so much, th so many things happening. I know. Well, there's wars going on there. Yeah. Um, That's wild. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah when you come fun. at that, it just makes me think of like ants and bees. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe there's other insects as well. I have no idea. There's snapping shrimp, but mostly people that, yeah, snapping shrimp have a cast division of labor. <laughs> I don't know that much about it, but I, uh, I didn't know that was a thing, snapping shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's wild. It's like one of the few systems besides, you know, Hymenoptera that might have this cast division of labor. So it's like fun to, fun to investigate. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, and I would never have guessed that, which. I, why would you, why would you guess that there's. Yeah. you know soldiers in the gonads of snails fighting I, off other parasites yeah it that would be a wild thing for you to guess <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yeah man that's crazy the more i learn about all the wild things that happen the more interesting the world is honestly mm -hmm. it's just like, do multiple trematode species infect multiple different kinds of snails or are they like you know what I mean? I'm trying to explain. Are they, are they host specific? Yeah. Like for the, yeah. Um, some are more host specific where they mostly are found in one species of snail. Uh, some are found in multiple species of snail, but the California horn snail, the one I, I worked in, most of them were specialized on the California horn snail as their first host. And there were, I think 15 different species of trematode. And so it makes sense why they might need soldiers because you have, you know, 15 different species that all potentially are trying to utilize the same snail host. Uh, and you want to be able to defend and keep that snail host because generally the parasites, you don't often find co-infections where you have two different trematode species because generally one will outcompete the other. So it's like a, only a transition phase where you might find both or two species. And in some of the places I've worked, there's like 70 or 80% infection prevalence. So most of the snails are castrated and most of them already infected by one species of parasite. So if an infection rate's that high, like, I guess you have to hope that the snails reproduced before this, otherwise eventually they'd all die out, right? And then that would be bad for the trematodes and snails. Yeah, so generally when I've sampled, we only sample ones that we know are mature, like a mature size. Uh, so that's like 20 millimeters or higher. And so there's still some, we, so we, there's less, much less uh, infection rates in the smaller snails that still might also be mature. So there's definitely some period of time for most snails where even if they get castrated later on, they maybe had like a bout of 
reproduction. And then there does seem to be, I mean, I don't have any data on this, but there does seem to be kind of ebbs and flows where little pockets of par- of snails will kind of go locally extinct if they get too high of infection and then they might come back later um, because like a lot of these, the California horn snail has like a, I think it's called like a veliger stage. So it has, it's dispersed in the water column. And so even if lo- a local population goes extinct, it can get recolonized relatively easily. Okay. But that yeah, it's sense. not good for the population. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it like boom and bust ebb and flow is like pretty yeah. typical predator mm-hmm. prey dynamics, I guess, yeah. which is basically what the neem- they're the um, worms and snails are doing essentially. Yep. Um, yeah. So I was just curious. Okay. Follow-up question. I know that my reference is apple snails make these like pink gooey things that they stick mm. on trees or whatever. And that's their eggs. Um, but like, is that normal for snails or do there other ways that snails reproduce? Like, I think you just said that they disperse into the water column. Is that my question is how is reproduction even happened for a snail? <laughs> yeah. So um, some of them are hermaphroditic. Some of them are hermaphroditic, but need a partner. So they're, um, I forget, I don't know what that's called. <laughs> but so like the ram's horn snails that I work on, they are hermaphroditic, but they need like another partner. And they lay egg clusters. So you'll see, like I have them in jars and you'll see egg clusters like all around on the glass. And some, I think, just release their gametes into the water. I'm not positive. I'm pretty sure that's the case. Um, I think that's like the periwinkle. And then actually the California horn snail, I've seen they have little egg clusters that they produce. Um, and I don't actually know if they, I know they have sexes, so I'm guessing they, um, need a partner and cause yeah, you can, you can, when, when I crack them, I can tell if they're a male or a female. So well, that's, but I don't, I, yeah, I don't think about their reproduction that much. So I, I'm not a good like snail reproduction expert. No, but. it's just a random thing <laughs> I was thinking about because I was thinking about the apple snails and I was like, you don't ever see something similar like in the salt marsh or maybe I'm just mm-hmm. missing it or don't know what I'm looking for or and so yeah, I just and got to thinking about that. In the, I think if you have the like marsh periwinkles, I think those ones disperse their gametes because I haven't seen any like egg clusters. Yeah. But then the California horn snail they'll lay it on like the mud, like these egg masses. Yeah. So like different species reproducing different ways and all that is, you know, makes sense, I guess, because fish all reproduce different ways and birds all Mm -hmm. do different things. It's just not that surprising, but yeah, curious. But the apple snails, I mean, those egg clusters are wild looking. So and toxic. (laughs) I didn't realize they were toxic. Yeah. Mm. I don't see them very often in the places I work and I'm happy about that. I smash all the ones I see. So, but yes. I'd spend all day doing that <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. Um, they're out of control. There used to be like a it's off topic, but there used to be, or maybe still is like report when you see apple snails. I'm like, I would just be reporting like this is everywhere Constantly. I went today. <laughs> like what we're beyond that point now, I think. Mm-hmm. 
All right. So uh, I looked at your website and saw you do a lot of outreach, including your podcast. I do. Yeah. Will you tell me all about that? Um, Yeah. So I haven't, like I did a bunch of outreach in grad school, but the majority of the outreach I do now is this podcast called Stem Fatal Pod, which I do with my friend, Emma Dietrich, who we did our PhDs together. And essentially we started, I guess, three years ago. We've been doing it a while, but every, we do it every two weeks. And um, essentially it's a, a women in science history podcast. So one week, like we switch off and who's in charge of telling the like life story of a historical woman in science. We only cover dead women. So it's like, you know, you, you tell the stories of the living, we tell the stories of the dead. We've got our little niches. Um, but yeah, so we tell like kind of the whole life story, like their struggles, their kind of place in science, um, their contributions. There's a lot of wild, uh, <laughs> wild things that people, one, they had like wild life stories and two, the, the oppression and the sexism is just so blatant back then that it's amazing at one I forgot now I don't remember who it was but one of the women we've covered she was they like begrudgingly accepted her into college but they made her sit on the other side of a sheet a white sheet so that because they were worried the men would get too distracted by a woman in class so she had to hide behind this like weird screen and watch lectures that is ridiculous yeah it's pretty it's hilarious but also upsetting so yeah that's that's our podcast it's fun it's very um it's it's a comedy adjacent i would say it's not very serious it's like two friends talking back and forth and trying to teach each other about history and and um like scientific contributions of women so it's pretty fun yeah i find you'll be very entertaining oh good 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 (laughs) yeah we Uh, do not do witty like we do not do um you know a lot of podcasts where they like have 20 minutes where they have like a conversation beforehand ours is very straight to the we have some witty stuff in between but we do not know how to have like chit chat beforehand yeah we're not good at it (laughs) I mean I'm not either I'm not like great at small talk in general so I kind of just like to dive in and yeah. when I, I record the intros to my podcast, I'm like, I see the timers getting to a minute. I'm like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> like, <let's just> <laughs> the episode. Yeah. So I hear you is the point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We were talking about like oppression. I think it was the Beatrix Potter one that I listened to recently. And it was just like, she did all these great things, but like couldn't show up for her own work and do all that because she's a woman, which is ludicrous, but you mm-hmm. know, it's the times, I guess. And yeah. Yep. Yeah, we talked. The, so we recorded. We talked about Hertha Ayrton, who's like a inventor, and she's British. She's an inventor. She's like an electrical engineer. She did a lot of cool stuff. She like won an award from the Royal Society, but she wasn't allowed to present her work in front of the Royal Society. So like men had to present her work for her because she like wasn't allowed to be there. They try people wanted her to be in the Royal Society as a fellow, but the Royal Society said no, because technically married women at that time had no like, like 
they didn't really like exist. They had no legal anything. So they're like, well, she can't be a fellow if she doesn't really like legally exist. So like all of this BS. Um, yeah. Oh. And there's a lot of universities that would allow, they finally like, will let women come and take classes. Like they have to pay tuition. They have to do all the same exams. They have to, you know, meet all the same requirements, but we're not going to give you a degree at the end. What? Like what kind of bullshit is that? <laughs> I know. I know. There's so much. I'm like, ah, yeah. Oh my Why? God. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of us just like being frustrated at the world. Yeah. Cause <laughs> it's still fun. Yeah. Uh, How'd y'all come up with that idea? Cause it's so clever. Um, and there's uh, so many people that are just like, we don't know about, and I've learned about a lot of people from you on this podcast, honestly. I didn't know anything. And I felt like a bad feminist where I'm like, women have always been in science. And then I couldn't give you a single example because I've mostly worked with like male mentors and I, my history knowledge is utter it's very bad it's very poor and so I just was like I want to learn about this stuff because I feel so ignorant and you don't learn about it in science like you just hear like male 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 scientist in most textbooks anything that's historical it's always contributed to like some of the male bigwigs and so and uh, my friend Emma and I have similar tastes in podcasts so it seemed like a fun thing to do. And she also did, actually, she knew a little bit more than I did. I like was like, I don't really know what Marie Curie did or Rosalind Franklin. Like, those are the two names I know. It was, I was very ignorant. And so it's been fun. Yeah, I mean, there's not like ignorant. a science history class out there that I know of that would even cover that probably anyway. Yeah, so it's awesome, is my point. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. And I think I like having it conversation sensational and like I'm teach like we're teaching each other because I feel like it makes it a lot more accessible like mm -hmm. we also don't know history or anything but come come learn with us I guess yeah so it's been fun yeah we've learned like I've learned about so many so many people mm -hmm. so it's been fun and it's, and it's also like uh my friend and I are no longer in the same place so it's a nice excuse to every other week, like catch up. We have like 45 minutes that we chat and then we're like, I guess we should start this podcast, <laughs> but it's yeah. been nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I've had a lot of people on my podcast where it's like people I knew already, but like maybe mm -hmm. haven't talked to recently. And it's yeah. like a fun way to like catch up and maybe have a conversation we never would have had. And that's enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and learn new things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's like a very approachable way to do like psychom like mm -hmm. you learn yourself it's very attainable mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I find outreach to be really hard in general or maybe it's just hard for me because I'm kind of an introvert there's mm -hmm. a lot of things I'm not allowed to do because of who I work for you know there's like these boxes that I'm in or like cornered in and so mm -hmm. trying to find ways to like make a difference outside of that box is a bit tough and Anyone that's like making progress is just astounding to me. Yeah, I think podcasts are also good because, uh, you know, anybody can listen to them anytime. Mm -hmm. And you find, especially if you're like on Twitter, you'll, you'll end up getting random followers that like aren't in science, uh, yeah. which is nice. Like we've had a lot of, well, maybe not a lot. We've had some like high school girls that have 
that listen to the podcast and they're like pretty excited which is nice that you're yeah. like getting a different audience yeah that's fantastic because i bet there's not a science history class in their high school so they found you not learning that way which is awesome yeah i doubt i doubt they're learning about these i definitely didn't learn about any of these people in high school i don't think i learned about marie curie in high school i don't like, know what maybe, i learned in she high might school. be the only one really mm-hmm. and maybe more of as like a, an aside than actually mm-hmm. about her <laughs> probably yeah i was just thinking now about be like being in high school now and there being like podcasts and the internet this is gonna make me sound really old just seems <laughs> like such an interesting <laughs> experience <laughs> yeah that would be so cool and i mean i find it cool now so i guess it's the same mm-hmm. but yeah access yes. to so much more information definitely like things that you're interested in that you wouldn't necessarily be able to to learn about as easily mm-hmm. yeah totally um i feel like i should have more questions about snails and trematodes but um is there anything you want to add about those that that i missed or that hmm. we didn't talk about uh they have some of them have eye spots look up now all i'm thinking about is like a planaria and i don't even know if that's related <laughs> Oh, that thing's weird looking. Uh-huh. So a lot of them have like little eye spots. Got like a furry tail and mm-hmm. a cucumber for a nose. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and they've got little eyes. Yeah. Oh, there's a close-up. That was too close. <laughs> too close for comfort. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, and it uses, oh, that's cool. There's like a picture of the life cycle. Mm-hmm. I can see why it's called a complex cycle is sort of a back tangent, but um, I do have another question is how did you get interested in snails and like, where did that all start for you? So very strangely, I, most of my PhD was trying to do this like complicated lab experiments with toxic algae showing weird cycles not going to get into it. Eventually, it just continued to fail. I think I spent like three years trying to get this and it had to do with cooperation. And so I'm really, I've been really interested in like cooperation and eusociality and stuff like that. And I also like parasites. So one of my advisors, um, Dan Bolnick was a, or is, he studies parasite ecology. And so I was interested in parasites, but I wasn't working on parasites and I was working on this like cooperation in toxic algae but it wasn't working at all and so I as a PhD student had an NSF graduate research fellowship and so as part of that you could apply for these like graduate research internship programs to work with a government agency and so you know I think I was like struggling a lot in grad school and I was like well maybe I would really like to work at like a government agency and also it'd be nice to have like a, a different project because I don't think mine is going to be working and so like just maybe to have another thing in case I need to jump ship fully and so like I I looked and so I found somebody Mark Torchin at the Smithsonian Tropical Research in- Institute that did you know aquatic ecology, um, invasion ecology, things that I was interested in, some parasite ecology. And we started talking and he, we're kind of talking about the different projects that he works on and like maybe how I could fit into something. And he said, oh yeah, and I'm working with a collaborator on these 
parasites, these parasites that castrate their snail hosts and then form a eusocial colony within the snail's gonads. And I was like, I would like to work on that. I, and at what capacity, I'm not sure, but you know, eusociality, like cooperation and eusociality, I kind of put into this one box. So I'm interested in both of them. So it like fit that, it had parasites. It was weird and wild. Um, and so I started working on that. And like the, the project that I worked on was looking at this like latitudinal gradient. So essentially in certain areas, there's really high infection prevalence in these snails. And in other places, there's almost no infection. So, you know, if you went and sampled hundred snails in Panama, you might get like two infected snails. Whereas if you went to San Francisco and sampled snails, you might get, you know, 80 per 80 of the snails infected. And so there's this really different risk of infection. And so I was interested in whether or not the parasites are allocating resources to reproduction versus defense based on the risk of being invaded. Um, and so I like sampled all across California and Panama looking at this relationship between infection prevalence and then whether or not they're allocating the, these colonies are allocating more resources to defense. So like they have more soldiers ready to fight off potential co-infections and they do, which is really cool. Um, and then I just got into the, the whole snail trematode thing. And so now I'm working on a different snail trematode system, but that's, that was my gateway. The, the eusociality is like, was my gateway drug. That's cool. So I was curious because you were recommended as like a snail person I should have on the podcast. So I was just curious, like, how does one become interested in snails? And so yeah. Like and my, my, my knowledge on snails is not very good. Yeah. So, uh, but I've, I've grown to love them. Weird, very specific thing to get into. I was in line to early vote for the, the election in November and, you know, it was a long line and people started talking to me and they asked me like what I did. I was like, oh, I, I'm an infectious disease biologist. And then of course they're like, well, tell me about COVID. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not at all helpful. And I was like, I study snails and their parasites. And they were like, why? <laughs> why? Yeah. But actually some of these trematode parasites um, in a lot of kind of in, in a lot of equatorial areas um, ha- cause like huge uh, human human issues. So there's a parasite, there's a trematode parasite called schistosomiasis that, um, you know, from like it infects snails in like a bunch of freshwater areas in like, you know, Africa um, and some a bunch of other areas along the equator and then this circarial form which is the free swimming stage that comes from the snail that generally like in euhoplocris would infect like the killifish it will try to burrow its way into people's legs so like if you're swimming so if you're in a place where like you bathe in the water or you go and wash your wash your dishes or wash your clothes then they'll like crawl into your skin and that causes like a whole bunch of human diseases and we are like the the host for them so it's like a huge i think it causes you know it's below malaria is one of the most burdensome diseases in like tropical countries so there's some some reason to study trematodes for like human human impacts besides them just being wildly exciting and having potentially you know effects on ecosystems and things like that 
Yeah, I think like outside of maybe like the ecology bubble, like studying snails seems ridiculous, but it Mm -hmm. like it's part of the system. And so we Mm -hmm. study all parts of the systems. And so it makes total sense to me as an ecologist. But yeah, these these snails, like one of the ways to control this disease is to try to limit, to try to control the snail population in some of these countries. And that's like the best form of control for schistosomiasis. So the snails, studying snails and their trematodes have a lot of applications. Yeah, totally. So did y'all figure out why the infection rates differed by latitude? Nope, don't know. Interesting. There's a lot of hypotheses, um, some based on kind of densities of birds. Like we, some things we know is areas that have a lot of, because the birds are the final hosts for most of the parasites that I study in the California horn snail, you know, really good, you know, good habitats, mostly like really stinky habitats seem to have a lot more birds, a lot more bird activity, have a lot higher parasites. Um, they, that you can actually use trematode parasite diversity as an index of ecosystem health. What, what they've done for restoration is if like a wetland is getting destroyed for, you know, building houses or like they need, they do something and they're trying to restore it later, they can sample the snail population and look for parasite diversity because in order to have a certain parasite, you need all of the different hosts in that place. So sampling, if you have high parasite diversity, that means you have a high number of these other hosts. And so you probably have a more healthy ecosystem, but that doesn't really explain the like geographic latitude, like why in Panama in general, is there really low infection prevalence and people don't really know that's like an active area of study, but in terms of like spottiness locally, it's basically based on, you know, ecosystem health and bird diversity. It's interesting to think that like presence of parasites indicates a healthy system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, trying to, parasites have a bad rap, which is understandable. They castrate things and cause uh, nightmares, but they also are like an integral part of the ecosystem and can, and and are indicators for certain things. So yeah, they're 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 not all villains. Yeah. I mean, they're just trying to live their life like any little bird would be doing. Exactly. They're just do it in a more complex way. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Do you have anything else you want to share? Otherwise, I have decided I'm going to ask everyone in 2021 two questions to end, and I'm ready for okay. that if you are. I, I am ready too. I, I don't think I have any, any more facts about snails or their parasites at this moment. <laughs> I kind of want to show that people, you know, scientists, engineers, whatever, that we're human too, and we have mm-hmm. hobbies and things. So my first question is like, tell me about your hobbies. I am obsessed with gardening. It's an unhealthy obsession. I've gotten up, all my Christmas presents have been related to my obsession with gardening. A lot of seeds. I have a lot of seeds. Mostly like I'm interested in having like a homestead. And so I'm trying to get as much experience with gardening. And so I have like, I have utilized as much space in my yard as I possibly can. Like we're renting and I'm just like destroying things to try to make like small farmlands. My neighbor asks me how my farm's doing, which makes me really happy. Um, Even though it's like three beds, but um, so that's like my obsession hobby and then I do a lot of baking. Um, my partner and I make beer 
and I do knitting. I go off and on on like knitting. Mm-hmm. I try. I've been making a hat that I, try, I was trying to make for my partner, and it's going to have to be for some child. I need to find a child because it's way <laughs> too small. But <laughs> that's okay. I'll find some child to give this hat it's to. It's fine. Someone will need a hat. <laughs> exactly. It's the winter. I find the garden to be really impressive because I can't keep succulents alive. So no, I can't. I can't. I kill succulents. I want to give them too much love, and it's not what they want. No, I've been neglecting one, and it looks better, but. <laughs> I'm not good at neglecting things yeah um yeah no succulents I've never I I don't even try anymore yeah there's but other things I can grow it's a trap yeah I tried Uh gardening but I'm always like in the field during like peak growth when things need to be watered so they don't fry and everything just fries Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it gets quite hot here yeah I look I luckily for this have relatively local field work like my field works right south of Atlanta, so I, I'm not going anywhere for not too bad. the summer, really. But I do, I'm trying to grow a bunch of transplants, so a bunch of tomatoes and peppers and stuff like that from seed. But I'm going to be, I'm teaching a course on uh, an island <laughs> it, for like February, so I'm going to be gone for a month. So I need to find someone to take care of my like crazy transplant chaos but you need a plant sitter (laughs) yeah I do need a plant I need a plant sitter real bad that's cool okay so Mm. my second and the last question is what are you reading right now if anything uh I don't like to read I this is what I've discovered about myself I sometimes I go through phases I have a book uh, by Tana French called The Searcher that's on my book shelf or like that's on my bed stand that I'm probably 50 pages into and I probably haven't picked it up in two weeks. So that's kind of the reader I am right now. Um, I do really like Tana French, but I don't know, having working on the computer and like reading all day, mm-hmm. honestly, it's kind of like sapped the joy of reading for me. I never really have been much of a reader, but uh, yeah, it's not, it's not gotten better with having to read a bunch of papers and things like that during work. No, that's totally understandable. When I was in grad school, I don't think I picked up like a book for fun the entire time or for like three years after. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It was just like, I am over it. (laughs) I don't want to read anything. Um, And then, but I've always prior to that and now again after I'm like an avid reader. So I'm always just curious Mm -hmm. what people are reading, but not everybody's a reader and that's okay too. Yeah, I've come to accept that I don't think I am like if, if I'm not working because I have to sit like most of my time I'm sitting and so like sitting and reading just isn't terribly appealing to me but and if I read before bed I get four pages in and I'm asleep so that's like straight out not it's not gonna happen yeah <laughs> yeah uh, I'm the opposite like sitting on a couch reading is like my happy place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's escapism no matter whatever it is it's a distraction sometimes uh-huh the um, coping mechanism especially because of the pandemic oh yeah like pretend it's not happening and read this uh-huh. book. <laughs> very right no it sounds nice awesome well that's all i've got and it's been so nice to meet you thank you for doing yeah that. yeah no problem thanks for uh inviting me yeah it was awesome I, to learn I like chatting that. you know you never thought there was so much to learn about snails yeah, I had no idea that like the parasite snail thing was so common because like 
I know that apple snails have a parasite because mm. people in Louisiana will eat anything and they have been trying to figure out ways to eat apple snails. And like, but they have a parasite. And only now am I realizing that that's like not an unusual thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just been fascinating to me. I think that's why escargot is land snails because land snails, they have other issues, but they don't have trematode parasites as mm. much, I don't think, because they're not in water. And so the whole life cycle, it's a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. Water's like an easy vector, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For all of the swimming that needs mm-hmm. to occur. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> so yeah. Lesson learned. If you're going to eat uh, snails, stick with land snails, I think. That seems like a safe, safe mm-hmm. advice to me. But eat- some of them also have like brain eating parasites, I think. I know in Hawaii, like there's parasites in the land snails that will kill you straight Mm. up that i don't know what kind of parasites they are i'm gonna just eat no snails how about yeah maybe if escar goes on a menu probably it's okay but maybe don't forage for snails maybe that's why that's not a thing it also doesn't like seem that appealing to eat because i mean it seems like an oyster and that texture is weird and i'm not sure how i feel about that no Um, no thank you not all that appealing to me any rate, that was a wild place <laughs> to end that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's been great to chat with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Hey y'all, it's Rachel here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, and how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast. So you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com. Or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter. Follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there. And just, you know, have a good day and thank you for listening. 